Hi, and welcome to Dr. Dark After Dark number 26, discussions with Anth Georgiadis, who is at Anthemos on Twitter. So I'm super excited this week because Anth is a longtime friend. So he's a great friend, he's a great entrepreneur, and actually I think more importantly, he's a great person. He may not agree with that, but I think that's really important. And this is the second podcast in the At The Coalface series, where we're really trying to get under the hood of what's going on in the real economy. So I've known Anth for over 10 years. He had the misfortune of working with me at Atomico, which is one of the largest VCs in Europe. This was about 10 years ago. And since then, Anth founded Zampa, which is, I think, the largest private rental discovery platform uh, used by about 80 million people in US and Canada. It's raised over $150 million in VC, and Anth is the CEO. So he really deeply understands the trends on the residential rental markets. They have tons of interesting data, lots of real-time data, so should be a great discussion. So as always, not investment advice, please do your own research. Anth, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. And yes, you, uh, I think Chris, going back to our Atomico internship where I was there for four months, I think I pitched you Zumper, not formally, but as a friend on my last day. And that is a frighteningly long time ago. I think it was 10 years when I was uh, playing around with Zumper as like an auction site for apartment rentals at the time. And you were pretty courteously like shut it down. And then it went through four iterations and ended up on something that stuck. But uh, yeah, great to be here. And yeah, it's been a decade since we've known each other. That was on the comfy chairs, right? <laughs> Correct. For the, That's for right. The, for the one person at Atomico listening that was there a long time ago, they all know what the comfy chairs are. So, um, well, but to be fair, when you had the first idea, it was, you know, and again, like when, when one's a VC, you you sometimes have good ideas, sometimes have bad ideas, but like, but like most ideas, it just needed a bit of iterating and then it kind of, um, and it took off. So fantastic. That's the whole point, right? That's the whole point. Yeah. It's, it's um, for those who don't know, kind of Zumper is, yeah, most well known as a kind of rental search platform uh, in the US. So kind of, you might use Zillow to look for a home to buy. You might use Zumper to look for a home to rent. And originally it didn't uh, start life as a platform. And actually when I pitched Chris the idea, just as a friend, I was, you know, we're playing around with this notion of auctions, which is like for the most expensive decision you make every year as a renter, which is where do I live? Wait, I'm going to spend a third of my income on my rent. Uh, why is there no transparent pricing? And we could have like really wanted to be like kind of like an eBay for rentals and discovered that on its own, it's not that interesting. And it, it's kind of like, uh, you can't really build like a massive business on its own. However, elements of that vision of like transactional e-commerce real estate instead of just like deals done on the side could have survived. So yeah, could have ended up getting baked into a wider platform, but my goodness, it took a long time to get there. Absolutely. Well, we'll talk more later on about the entrepreneurial journey because I think that's always really interesting. But why don't we start with... um. Well, 2020, right? It's been a bit of a doozy so far. Uh, obviously, nothing's really happened. Um, <laughs> how has everything that's been going on affected your business? And what, what are you seeing in the residential rental market? And really, we're going to be talking about North America, I guess. So just for the listen. Yeah, sure. I mean, so we were lucky in the sense of giving the entrepreneur first answer. We raised our Series D uh, round um, one week before COVID. So we yeah, wired I, the money. Yeah. And the next week, we sent the entire office home to work from home. So it was a 
uh, it, it was a rough, uh, was a, it was a weird week. Our CFO said we're going to look like geniuses with that timing, but it was complete fluke. So um, obviously it was a kind of a weird Q1, Q2 for, for our business, like every other uh, business in the world. In terms of COVID in the US, obviously I think the US has had an embarrassingly poor uh, reaction to COVID and a very disjointed one that I, I obviously I don't think Trump has been the best leader of it. Um, is an understatement, but the truth is the way that the states are set up that it was it is quite hard in a federal uh, country to kind of have a coordinated response. So our our numbers, like for our industry, which is apartment rentals or house rentals and apartment rentals, uh, volume was down forty percent immediately. So uh, you know, in March and April, uh, Google search volume, our volume, everyone else's volume was significantly down. So because we're still growing really fast, our volume was not down 40%. We were kind of flat year on year, but we were supposed to be up 40% year on year. So it didn't feel good. And what we saw was just a, a six week, uh, period where renters didn't want to do anything. They wouldn't visit open houses. And then kind of five to six weeks later, everything came back and, uh, uh people, got bored, started going out again. People decided they had to make moves in their life. And then the unfortunate reality is a record number of Americans, at least in our lifetime, were unemployed. And that is a huge life event, obviously, that often leads to downsizing or upsizing, whichever way around, your housing, which for many people was downsizing. So actually like Q2 ended stronger than we've ever been, but um, it's it's still kind of a very weird economy out there. And um, I, th I think that like rentals are one of the things that comes back quickly because if you're going to move back with your parents, you're going to move and it's going to happen. And Zumper allows you to do that. Right. Okay. That's really, that's really interesting. So I guess not surprisingly when you literally weren't really allowed to leave your house, that probably wasn't that conducive to looking at new houses. Um, but what's interesting is it snapped back fast. And of course, I guess part of that is also you, you need somewhere to live. And then if you've lost your job and you have to downsize, you have to downsize fast. Um, what else have you seen with, um, I guess my question is, are you seeing like any kind of secular shifts or just kind of short-term trends? You know, it might be in or out of cities or from coasts to, you know, Midwest or you know, just kind of what, what's going on on a, and not, not just like New York and San Francisco, what's going on in kind of some of the other cities that get talked about a bit less? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's kind of two macro trends that I think will never reverse. So the, the first is obvious and it's technological. The like before covid only 20% of our, sorry, only I think 10% of our renters would be prepared to take a, a, a 12 month lease online without having ever seen it. So even if we provided video or Matterport VR, only one in 10 of our users would commit to a rental without visiting. That number during COVID spiked to 80%. Now oh, wow. it's not going to stay there. It'll settle back down, but it'll probably settle down to like 25 to 30%, which is a seismic shift in behavior. So that's, that's the first one, which is obviously great for Zumper's business, which is like online rental transactions. Um, the second one is like a lifestyle one. So you can allude it to this, but what we're seeing in our data, and, and Zumper has more US rental listings than any other platform. So when we publish data, it's pretty statistically significant. So I feel kind of pretty confident in these conclusions. There's, there's not a mass exodus of cities. So I think if you read Twitter, you'd think that every single person is leaving every single city in the US and is never going to return. But you see this massive kind of what, what we've called like the Brooklyn effect of this migration from like what used to be a primary geography in, a, in, a, in an area to like somewhere where it's cheaper with a higher quality of life, like a lower cost of living and maybe more space. So for example, San Francisco rents are down 12%. 
but Oakland rents are up. Like people are moving to the East Bay. Sacramento rents are up 7%, somewhere no one was talking about living a year ago. But um, as, as companies move to kind of work from home and sustained kind of like more flexible uh, lifestyles, I don't think everyone's moving to the suburbs, but we do see people moving from primary to secondary hubs. And I think that's going to be a, a trend that people stick with. And it's the first time I've ever believed that that's real. Um, the Economist wrote an article about this a couple of years ago that everyone's leaving all these major hubs and it just wasn't true. Curious to see if you see this, Chris, um, where you are, but like, this is actually real this time. And um, it doesn't mean New York and Boston and Chicago and LA are gonna empty out, but they're gonna be significantly uh, less dense for the next 24 months. Right, yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess I'm in Hong Kong, so it's sort of, there is nowhere to, if you wanna be in Hong There's Kong, no you kind of yeah. have to That's be right. in Hong Kong, right? So. It's sort of, um, yes, there are kind of more, not really rural, but slightly more rural areas, but um, they're, they're a lot of relatively impractical to live in. Um, so Hong Kong is probably not the best place to think of, but, um, but that totally makes sense. And I was just wondering, like, so with the whole, I mean, I, I completely agree that this work from home shift, I mean, you know, basically Twitter said you could work from home forever more. I mean, of course, this could get reversed, but, you know, Google said for at least another year, it looks to me like the, the West Coast tech companies are leading here. Microsoft's been putting out a whole heap of information on the insights they've been getting from people working at home. So are people now caring a lot more about, I'm wondering how this affects infrastructure. So do people care more about the quality of their internet when they're moving apartments? Because if you have a crappy connection, um, working from home is incredibly difficult. Um, and standards of connection and broadband or fiber, uh, you know, can obviously vary hugely across uh, the US. So. Yeah, totally. And, and the reason it's a material shift is an interesting point is that it's not being funded by the employee, it's being funded often by their employer. So if I look at Zumper, I mean, we are saving a, we're saving several hundred thousand dollars a month of operational costs by not being in our office. And that excludes our lease, which we're unfortunately still committed to. Uh, just the running of an office, the the maintenance, the snacks, the perks. And, you know, we're right in the middle of Silicon Valley and we play all these games to build an amazing culture for our team. So they don't exist right now. And so instead, there's a huge demand to actually allow people uh, to set up well at home. So fiber, you know, gigabyte internet, standing desks, like monitors that really kind of like empower you. Yeah, it's happening. There's a huge spend on this. And the, the good news for most employees, uh, especially the bigger companies, is they're not paying a dime. This is their employer paying the, the, the kind of setup cost. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Actually, yeah, standing desks. I remember when, they, when, when I first started my work career, that's when they, probably about 2005, they started becoming popular. Um, so, I've gone uh, full circle. I think it means I'm getting old. I, I didn't like them. Then I got into them when I moved to Silicon Valley. I have to sit down now, again. Here I am taking this call at home on a standing desk, but I'm sitting at it and the height hasn't been. <laughs> well, you have a very high chair. I'm joking. For a long joking. time. <laughs> Not even. But yeah, it's a, uh, yeah. It's, and I think that kind of setup at home is going to be very popular. And again, it's not, not every company is about to go for work from home. I think like people are dying to get back to hubs somewhat. And so this whole like cities are dead uh, rhetoric is nonsense. Um, however, a significant minority won't return to the city or to working five days a week in their office. I think the, the kind of hub strategy makes more sense where people might go in one or two times a week and work from home the other three. That have a big, big uh, impact on infrastructure and economies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like, 
And um, how have you, and, you know, like, ha- well, with your hand on your head and your heart, like, I mean, because like you say, like, when, when employees are not together physically, you know, you're not getting those kind of serendipitous meetings in the, you know, like the 30 second chat in the corridor and things like that. You know, having said that, if people don't have to commute two hours each way or whatever, that that's a massive time saving for employees. So are you finding work from home kind of, first of all, are, are your employees still working from home? And or if not, when they were, do you think they were just as productive, more productive, or do the tools need to be, you know, we were all using zoom, but you know, the Zoom and Microsoft need to be plowing billions into this area to kind of come up with actual genuinely better collaboration tools. Yeah, so your your question, Chris, reflects the reactions of the two cities and areas we live in where uh, we're based in San Francisco. And like the idea that, so your question of are you still work from home is hilarious if you lived in San Francisco because the US reaction to COVID has been so poor that the answer is an overwhelming yes. Okay, right. <laughs> Everyone is at home, and if you if you lived here, someone would look at you with a weird glance to ask the question of if you come back to the office. But it's a testament to how behind the US is the rest of the world. Um, yes, Zumper is still at home. Uh, we're we're not in the real world. There's implausible to think that hundreds of us are about to go back to the office in the next even nine months. I just can't see that happening. Um, uh, Serendipity is the key on the on the downside serendipity is the number one thing you hit the nail on the head Chris of what we missed like just having your CTO sit next to like a junior support person over lunch like there's the serendipitous product decisions you miss and the second one and I am curious what you think about this Chris is like I feel I feel the worst for our junior talent like I think the, the director level and VPC level like they're fine everyone can figure it out they, they're kind of responsible and like autonomous but like the junior talent we have it's much harder to mentor them on Zoom and on Slack and with all these tools. It, there is just something like old school, but true about like in-person collaboration with like, especially on the creative side, like designers, product thinkers. I miss that. Uh, I, I really miss that. And I miss, I miss the junior members of our team because we just can't mentor them as well. The flip side, I'm, I'm personally long on, on what I've learned. Um, I feel like Chris, you and I as two Brits with a similarly like classic Oxford upbringing in our education taught us like offices, <laughs> how shit gets done and how like the world works. And like, I feel like we were lied to where I see the productivity gains Zumper's had in the last four or five months from a hundred percent remote. And even though I know some of the productivity gains are temporary and there's shelter in place and we would, you know, we definitely don't want to burn people out. Just like listening to my team and how succinct they are on Zoom calls because they don't want to drag on and how we don't meet that often anymore because we just, people don't want to be on Zoom every day and people just get work done. Um, um, it's really hard to imagine going back to the old way in exactly the same way. How, how have you found it? I'm curious from like what you see. Like, I don't think most startups will ever, maybe not most. I don't think, I, I think like 40% of startups will not go back to a, a five day working week. I think they might go back to one or two days in the office and the rest is remote. What do you see happening? Cause I'm also aware that once bars and everything open, there'll be an enormous pressure to go back. Right. And, okay. So let me talk from maybe a US standpoint first. Um, I, I think in Asia, you might have some different dynamics where I think FaceTime in an office is a more important social, not social, but just kind of cultural thing. Um, you know, like in Japan, for example, like, or China, if there's, it could be quite different, but again, but, but I think that might just need time to change. But 
your first point on serendipity and the junior talent, I was just jotting that down. And the first thing I wrote was, how do you mentor them? And then you kind of talked about that. Um, I think that this, this is a, the serendipity point, I think, is talked about more. It's sort of obvious. Um, but the, the, the junior talent mentoring side is, is really not. And I think there's two things there. One, um, the likes of Microsoft and Zoom, and of course, there's now going to be thousands of startups trying to improve um, collaboration from home. Um, and um, I think that you have to get serendipity into those products somehow. So one idea I had was, you know, what, why don't you have a list of 30 people that you want to randomly talk to each month? And and it will give you serendipity, but it's just going to be on whatever it's going to call them or it's going to do it on chat or whatever it is. And I think there are ways you can engineer some random serendipity into things on the mentoring side. I think a lot of it's going to be down to, I mean, okay. It's, it, you know, when we were working together, we'll pop to the pub in London, right. And have a pint, you know, okay. That's not happening at the moment. Um, But I think with companies that have good mentoring processes, and take it seriously can probably still get 80 90 percent of the the value from it even being remote but i think it's one of those things that a lot of companies will just sweep under the carpet and forget about because it's kind yeah. of harder it's more awkward and like but but again that's that's not good if you know the the uh the people who have just joined are the leaders of tomorrow so super important um and um it's interesting though you say on meetings because microsoft put out this big report saying they're seeing a lot uh, people are having a higher number of much shorter meetings, just like yes. you said. And and then I thought I thought that the logical extension to all this was just work would just get much more, less about hours and much more about milestones and goals. Like, okay, if I've got this thing done, yes, if I'm done on Wednesday afternoon, play golf Thursday, Friday, hang out with the kids, it's fine. Now there may be times where you need to help out on something else, but um, I, I just think the whole concept of what, whether you say nine to five or eight to six or whatever the hours are, uh, you know, this could just be the, the pin that just shatters that. Um, yeah, I you think know, but as you said, not for everyone, you know. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, like given in the US, obviously since the murder of George Floyd, that, you know, the diversity and inclusion has been a key topic in like startup lands. Like what better leveler than like removing any bias there where it's like, look, you don't need to judge someone by like what they, what they wear, what they look like, how they wear their hair. Like, isn't it like how we all run sales teams where like no one gives a shit what a sales team person is doing at Tuesday or 11 a.m. because you, they live and die by their numbers. Well, I actually think the COVID and shelter in place is forcing us to all become completely objective about product work and engineering work. And it's really healthy in some way. And it really is the great leveler that may reduce a bunch of bias in hiring processes. Absolutely. And those that know my dress sense will be very thankful that I don't need to try and <laughs> look smart. But, but this is interesting though, right? Because I haven't even thought of stuff like dress sense. I mean, you know, again, the, it's a great point because the obvious thing is less people commuting. Okay, well, this is going to put, you know, you're going to be driving less, less gas, gasoline consumption, using public transport less, which means less money for public transport, which means that infrastructure probably starts to crumble even faster than it is, especially in the US. Yeah. And, but then it means, well, if you're who's going to wear suits? Like, you know, there's so many, you know, smart shoes. Like it sounds silly, but these are all areas of the economy because you know, you spend what a third of your life working, what a third of your working life working. So, you know, just eating out at lunch. Now you can make a sandwich at home. Like, you know, so probably Walmart benefits from this and Costco. Yep. 
it, you know, and obviously Amazon basically benefits from everything. So, um, it's interesting. I mean, like we're talking on the day where like Uber just put out like their like quarterly report. Uh, so they just did their Q2 earnings, as you probably saw. Yeah. And, like, well, yeah, earnings like, is not now. quite the right term. But... <laughs> Sorry? I don't know if earnings is the right term. So. <laughs> Correct. I mean, they're down. I mean, like, obviously their Eats business is on absolute fire. But obviously, as you would expect, Uber ride sharing, you know, for their own is down, I think, 75%. But it's interesting because... Whereas obviously they can be bullish about post shelter in place, like ride share returning. Like when I think of my Uber consumption or my Lyft consumption, like 80% of it isn't going out like drinking. Well, I have kids now, so I'm not doing that as much as I used to, but like 80% of my Uber ride is my commute. And I'm sure that for many people who have a disposable income that will support that, like Uber pool, Uber is a huge part of their dollar spend is commuting. And so I think like when you look at like some of the M&A going on and especially Uber going after like Grubhub and then going after Postmates, which they actually did. I mean, I wonder if they think there's no return for for ride sharing and that it's never going to get back to par with where it was because half of the rides might have just been people commuting or going on business travel, which is potentially like really kind of a thing of the past. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I, I look, as you know, like, you know, years ago we you know we invested in um um halo which was kind of the uber of london at the time and you know it's uh so i know a fair amount about the margins of this business and like you know the thing that struck me for uber was whilst the eats business was up over 100 percent um it's still losing money you know it's yeah. just they're in a lot of tough businesses with a lot of competition um but of course consolidation will happen and um but you know I, I, I just, I don't know if this company can ever make, make any money. Um, but then again, people said that about Amazon, right? So they prove people very and, wrong. And to the annoying questions for those listening, I've been pinging Chris, like difficult and dumbass kind of macroeconomic questions. Cause Chris is like one of my two or three go-to people on like difficult questions around like monetary supply and economics. I mean, to some extent, like it doesn't really matter in this earnings cycle what companies say. There are some other companies that I won't name today um, uh, who reported earnings with some like pretty staggering like uh, numbers, both good and bad. And I mean, like the, the market doesn't care. There's so much money chasing returns that if you can show growth, I don't think there's ever been a period where your EBITDA matters less. Um, it's kind yeah. of a a bizarre climate right now and it, I, I get why it ha- why it's happened but uh it's, it's a weird climate out there and it's interesting that uber's actually down uh despite not it, it was not as apocalyptic as it could have been and uber's stock is actually down since the earnings call which is which is surprising yeah no it's a it's a crazy time right now but you know it's but when it's crazy time there's opportunities for people so um yeah you know i mean in effect the tech companies have become the new bonds you know, like Microsoft, Apple, they're going to pay their dividends. They have tons of cash. Like, in fact, you're going to get more yield there than investing in uh, government treasuries, for example. And, and um, you know, just, well, like you said earlier, everything we were taught in the last 20 years has been basically ripped up and the same's happened with um, investing. But, but not for some things, like the fact gold's on a good run right now kind of makes sense with yep. all the, you know, some things make sense, some things don't. Um, I just think people that there are a lot of people on Twitter that just like to complain about the things that don't make sense to them um, every day. And um, yeah, like me, 
like me and then no one answers my question and then I have to side email you where I'm like why don't you well yeah but there's your questions are quite difficult so (laughs) (laughs) you got to remember on Twitter no one wants to not be able to answer your difficult question (laughs) right (laughs) I you never see someone say wow that's an amazing question I have no (laughs) idea what the answer is (laughs) I like being the dumb guy on Twitter which is like look here's my understanding of monetary theory and here's why it's breaking down now because you cannot just add three trillion dollars and, and like it can't just stay at the top anyway you've you've been generous with your time but it's a i don't think yeah as chris said like there's no economic textbook that taught us about the way the government and the fed and the banks are using like um monetary theory and fiscal theory um tools right now i mean it's this is brand new and it could be the most insanely uh risky experiment like of our lifetime in terms of economic well, policy. You, you mean but this isn't just perfectly tuned? They know to the nearest dollar how much uh, to, to spend, right? Because they're not arguing yeah. about trillions today. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mad. it's either going to overshoot or undershoot drastically. The chances of this being perfectly tuned are nigh on zero. So, yeah. And, and the but, difference- but there's a massive difference this time. Like, you know, a lot of the tools that were used in like the, the in inverted commas, the, the, you know, the great recession, which looks kind of <laughs> a little overstated these days. I mean, like they were replacing credit, like the most recessions were replacing credit when we do a stimulus or we you use monetary policy to inflate the balance sheet. But this time we're not replacing credit. We're kind of replacing demand. And like, this is a very different kind of QE and um, money supply uh tooling it's very different um and it might be that the fed may learn the lesson that they have to act fast but like this isn't replacing credit this is replacing demand and that is a scarier statement so we'll see um and this might be the cleverest thing they have ever done or it might be the dumbest thing uh, in economic policy since we were born right and yeah i mean and, and so yeah it's kind of replacing demand or income whatever you want to call it right with 32 million on benefits now it's one in five people in the u.s um and so i guess the obvious question on that for you is like how important is that stimulus for people paying their rent like and and, yes i mean you can't have 32 million people being evicted like that's just not going to happen i mean yeah even a hardcore republican is not going to let that happen so nope and and i think stimulus by the way replacing people's income and the stimulus checks i think were excellent moves like that's the kind of stuff they did quickly which i fully agreed with um i think it's more like some of the QE that's supposed to trickle down to like uh, the blue collar folks is just that's not going to happen. That's the stuff I question more. Yeah, on the stimulus and the checks, like yeah, the, obviously Congress is arguing about it as we talk. Um, they'll, I'm sure they'll get to some kind of agreement. But um, in terms of rent, um, yeah, the the markets like the reason rent markets, which have obviously seen huge downward pressure in the last four months. Uh, are kind of on stalling now is that a lot of states have banned evictions, which again, I actually agree with um, as the CEO of a two-sided marketplace. It's it's rare I'll kind of pick a side because obviously a lot of landlords are frustrated by eviction um, things, but, uh, or moratoriums, but this is right. Like this isn't, this is such a seismic macro shock that couldn't have been expected that I, I don't think the economy can deal with the thrash of like, 30 million evictions as well um that would have a huge well that would lead to i mean that would that that would with 100 percent certainty lead to mass riots that will make the previous riots look like tiny so uh 
Correct. And just ethically, like most of our landlords agree on this. They're like, yeah, they're going to lose some money, but like, of course they're going to lose some money. They can't expect uh, to be purely protected by this lease contract. And so, yeah, it's kind of one of those things where like, I'm a, I'm an economist and like a believer in capital markets, but this is one of those interventions when you get uh, uh, bans on evictions for a period of time that I think you, you have to do as a society, if you believe in the concept of society along the con- alongside the concept of capitalism. I don't think they necessarily have to um, fight each other all the time. And um, so in terms of Zumper, what it's created is a um, actually kind of a lot of supplies come to market. So which is kind of uh, been one of the factors why rental prices have been dropping precipitously in most primary markets. However, those prices uh, may have actually dropped further if you hadn't had this halt on supply coming to market because people that miss rent payments aren't being kicked out. So what's interesting in the macro world is like actually rent prices in primary cities may have further to fall, which is kind of a pretty strong statement when you have double digit rent drops in, in some major markets, they may have further to go. So it's kind of one to watch. Yeah. It's interesting. And are the landlords getting, so, so, I mean, obviously landlords vary from kind of the landlord that owns one property up to, you know, giant property groups, you know, um, but kind of ig- ignoring the giant property groups, which I'm sure have ways of getting money, like the kind of the more mom, mom and pop landlords that could be really struggling if people don't pay their rent. Are they getting relief at the moment? Because that doesn't seem to get as talked about as the people that, are, that may or may not be evicted. And I understand why, but, but there are plenty of landlords that are not earning millions a year so yeah so they're not beyond stimulus checks that they may qualify for as a consumer or a small business loan if if you know they they have a small shop for property management or something yeah there's kind of just they're not getting anything they're not getting um, anything in addition to what i mean so my last okay. podcast with went all into the um the the, the, the sba stuff which is yep. its own kind of shit show but anyways <laughs> Yeah. And if you were like a small landlord who runs a property management office on top of your units, you could probably apply for the SBA. Um, yeah. But for like a, like you say, like the stat is 55% of US uh, properties, uh, 55% of the housing stock that's rented is in the hands of landlords who have 20 units or fewer under management as typically one or two kind of like nest eggs for their family. Um, they're not getting anything. And it's kind of a funny one because like somewhat you and, and by the way, my wife and I are landlords. Like we we rent out a couple of properties in San Francisco, so it kind of also affects us. And but it's kind of like it is somewhat true that in recessions and downturns, landlords across like residential real estate, commercial real estate, a kind of other areas of real estate are often the most protected because they you know they have literally legal paper that guarantees an income stream every month and often doesn't have any kind of God clauses, uh, except if there's literally like a third world war. And so landlords have arguably the safest income stream of any kind of risky-ish investor. Um, And so I think like the markets haven't really felt too sorry for them and and the bias has been on the tenant side. Yeah, and that that totally makes sense. And so do you think we, does capitalism still exist in America? I mean, someone told me the other day we should call it a, not capitalism, but we should call it a free market. So not have an ism at the end, but people tend to believe we should have free markets. And whilst you could argue free markets are the same as capitalism, I could argue everything we've just talked about is the opposite of capitalism. So, um, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's really confusing. Um, I, I don't know where I am. Uh, I find I'm like super right on some stuff and super left on others. Um, like 
I mean, you also, I mean, look at, you know, most people would have thought Donald Trump and a Republican administration obviously would have been like far off the scale and like no government intervention and leave the markets. And, but look at what we have. Like, you know, we have a, ba- a $7 trillion balance sheet now where the government by proxy of their like tools are intervening in the markets. And this is a Republican government doing it. Now I understand why they're doing it, but like if you, if someone told you that like a Trump administration is going to be writing checks to consumers and funding it by, well, with the various tools they're using to fund it. I mean, that's like, it's, it's bonkers uh, because it, it just breaks down the, this whole left and right theory of economics and it, it blends them into a whole new way of looking at the Fed and the treasury and the government. So I don't know, like, I don't think I can even answer your question because I'm not even sure what capitalism and free markets even means because I still think Americans think we have a free market and yet the government are without doubt propping up the stock market indirectly. And I, I saw a study over the weekend that I think at least 12% of the 35 or so percent recovery the market's had in the last three months, at least 12% of it can be through a regression put on direct QE and the money that was generated that, that's kind of come back to the stock market. And so what kind of free market is that when the government are responsible for at least a third of the stock market price rises? It, it is bonkers i mean how do you how do you reconcile that chris um how does that make sense anymore even if it's the right decision it's just the people that you wouldn't expect to do it are doing it right so first of all i I, thank you thank you for sending me that study because i hadn't seen it so that was very interesting and i did read that again it was one of those studies which i'm sure one could nitpick in many different ways right but at the end of the day it was it was a serious academic study um and yeah to your point like it's almost like now, you know, when was the last time you heard the words, the tea party? Like, I mean, literally you couldn't go a day five years ago without hearing yeah. about the tea party. And now it's like, they're kind of irrelevant because every policy that they were talking about in terms of deficit reduction, and you know, especially when Obama was in office, well, now it's just all kicked by the wayside. So it's amazing how fast these things change. Um, you know, and I think it's also fair that you know, it, it's, it's like Neil Howes talked about with the kind of fourth turning as, as in effect that he predicted in the late 90s would happen around 2020. You know, we're in a world where millennials are now, um, I mean, I think, yeah, you and I are just about, I'm a little older than you by a couple yes. of years, but we're at the older right. end of, I'm literally at the, 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 uh, um, the actual cusp between the Gen X and millennial, but um, you're getting this, um, um, yeah, the, the kind of fourth turning, the shift where these guys are now beginning to actually get power. They're actually beginning to get some money, but they've still got like 30. I mean, the, the wealth divide is insane versus um, yeah. where when boomers were the same age as an average millennial now, which is early 30s, boomers had like 10 times more assets as a percent of assets than millennials now. So, you know, so yeah, what is a free market? What is capitalism? I, this is all stuff that's going to get debated and, I think anyone that says there's easy answers is a little deluded. Um, and yes, it's crazy, but at the same time, what if, you know, the U S didn't in effect, well, it, it basically print money to give people money, like 32 million people not able to eat or live is, is, is clearly not acceptable. So, you know, you know, again, it's, you know, if, if you're Iowa president, like, and neither of us can be, of course, um, being British, um, then um, 
it's not like we're going to have some silver bullet to solve all this. Um, and this is why there are long-term cycles, right? 70-year cycles, 200-year cycles of the great superpowers. You know, the US has had a good run uh, and it could have a could still have another 100 years of being number one. Um, but, and I don't necessarily mean just on GDP, but, you know, these, these are all things which the 2020s are going to be, yeah, they're going to define the next few decades. So, Yeah, and you put it quite well, Chris. I never thought of it like that, but like, yeah, there's a point at which economic theory doesn't matter at all. And like, it's kind of interesting that a Trump administration did this. But like your point on, well, if you don't send fiscal stimulus checks and risk a massive fiscal deficit, some people can't eat. So why not kick the can down the road, figure out the economics later and allow your population to eat? That's clearly the right decision. Like, I don't, get, I don't care if you're right, left, like super right, super left, like that's the right decision. <laughs> like kicking the can on what, ripple effect that has on the macro economy just the right call so then yeah it's kind of it's it's economics doesn't mean as much anymore when you're making short-term and correct decisions like that and there's there's it's really hard to imagine anyone's going to reverse this like if biden gets in in november november or effectively january biden's not going to do quantitative tightening like they're not going to pull this money out and like suck it out of the economy i i get that like there could be rampant inflation but the problem is there's not demand and like you said millennials don't have the level of wealth that their parents did and then on your other point chris on america and i'm seeing this as and i know many of your listeners will be in in the u.s as an immigrant here who watches it as an observer of this kind of amazing and complex country i'm kind of bullish and bearish at the same time i'm bearish in the sense of you see what's coming out of like where you are like Eastern Asia and, and, and Hong Kong. And, you know, you look at some of the startups in Beijing and Shanghai as well as Hong Kong. And like the, the technological advances that Asia is making, I are starting to become like really, like, I mean, they're really overtaking Silicon Valley. And, and if you combine that with the incessant work ethic <laughs> that I think uh, a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs and uh, are feeling to, to kind of eclipse Silicon Valley, it's a pretty powerful compound saying that, Silicon Valley is still so far ahead on some of the layers around that about efficient organizations and like how to scale, how to go public, um, that, that they do have a moat where I don't think they're about to be displaced overnight. So I'm kind of, I can see it both ways. I mean, like, let me ask you this, Chris, you're, you know, based in, in Hong Kong, like what's the general sentiment of like tech or whether it's crypto or blockchain or, or kind of like consumer tech, ML, AI, like, do you think kind of Asian entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs based in Asia, they, they see this as like, this is the, the handover and the, bat, the baton is going to be reluctantly handed over or do they still see Silicon Valley as this like dream that they uh, need to eclipse, but they're not on the brink of doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, let's, I, I, I wouldn't put Hong Kong in any of this. It's kind of, a bit part player when it comes to tech but let's say if we're talking about shenzhen just over the border uh hangzhou which is where alibaba are based shanghai beijing you know these are where you've got and guangzhou like a huge number of startups um so i I think it's yeah and and i've spent you know my last business i was in china maybe 50 times um and so i've spoken to a lot of people and stuff like this so generally the an entrepreneur in china um has a huge amount of respect normally for their kind of counterpart US companies. So, you know, um, but, but, but equally they want to beat them. They want to build a better product. And, you know, there's a lot of 
you know, 10 years ago, it was just like, oh, well, China's just going to copy it. Well, okay, but you know, WhatsApp clearly wasn't copied by WeChat because WeChat gave itself about 100 times more functionality than WhatsApp. So, and even Mark Zuckerberg himself has admitted this. Um, so you've, people in China are aggressive. They want to win. Um, and the thing is, they can win in their local market and build a business worth $100 billion. I mean, there's not many countries in the world you can do that. It's really US and China, maybe India. Um, you get a big multiple if you have a big business there. Um, but, um, th but they struggle to how do they work on a global stage? Um, you know, obviously right now we're in the middle of this TikTok stuff and who knows what's yep. going to happen with all this. I mean, it's now Trump wants to get paid part of the deal. I mean, you know, yeah, like a there's banker, so much crazy stuff yeah. happening. Um, but really, you're right in China, you've, especially in China, but it's in Southeast Asia too. And, you know, don't forget, you've got six, 700 million people in Southeast Asia. Great work ethic, really smart people, really well educated, very good at math. Like education of the basics is very good. Um, and they're all learning to code and they're all learning to speak English. Um, and, um, you know, so the way I kind of look at the world is um, just in terms of where the growth's going to come, you know, in the next 10 years, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me it's going to be mainly in Asia. Um, you know, US will be fine. I'm really concerned on Europe. What yeah. I kind of see happening is when you talk about kicking the can, it's, it's like that's what Europe is brilliant at, right? Like, you know, let's just kick the can on Greece, on whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, we don't need to deal with this now. But that's what the US is now starting to do, right? And US didn't used to do that as much. So Europe, US is kind of becoming Europe-like in that way. And Europe is basically becoming Japan-like in terms of just stagnation and no growth. And now what, what Japan ultimately becomes, who knows? And there are obviously differences between these countries but, um, and, and regions. But um, just, yeah, in terms of when all this madness is over, where I'm going to be looking to invest is where is the real growth? And ultimately, that's going to be about population and productivity. And I'm not so sure that's going to be in the West, but we'll see. Yep. Yeah, cool. All right. So why don't we talk a bit about entrepreneurial stuff? So, I mean, this Zump is your first business, right? I think. Or have you done something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, startup. Right. I thought you might have some, you know, random startup from Oxford or something. No, sadly not. <laughs> well, you know, it's all good. Um, so it's your first business. Look, it's 80 million people use it or whatever the latest number is, like huge number. Um, what have been your key learnings? And like, have you had any near kind of fatal mistakes that you, you just about managed to avoid? Yeah. So um, I, I think the, the key lesson is definitely that it doesn't matter how smart you are. Like you, everyone's smart. Like there's lots of very clever people, whether they went to a fancy university or they didn't even leave high school, the IQ is everywhere. Um, I think my biggest lesson of a startup is like uh, resilience and like a, a kind of very good work ethic and like they will help you to win. Like you, you have to have, you know, curiosity and you have to be creative and understand market dynamics. But like, honestly, I, I don't know a single successful entrepreneur that the really kind of the way they got there was that they were deeply resilient because they faced all the buffers and all the buffeting from forces left and right. And they work super hard and it's kind of an unsexy script. Most people want to believe you can just come up with a magic idea and it scales, but in like 99.9% .9 of successful companies, not even all companies, successful companies, there's just not true. So I've, I've learned the hard way that, uh, yeah, you've got to, you've got to grind it out and, uh, you're going to, 
for every good day, the next day you're going to find something that scares the hell out of you and you're going to worry for your life about it. Um, in terms of fatal mistakes, so we're eight years in, yeah, we're now the largest private company in the space. There's two companies in our space who are public, who are bigger than us, but we're, we're by some distance now the largest privately held company. So kind of in the next couple of years, we'll, we'll think about whether we want to go public or, as well. Um, the biggest fatal mistake is not bringing great talent on fast enough. Um, I, in the most, in the last couple of years, we've started to bring on like really senior season leaders as Zumper, where my executive team, apart from, I think one or two people is now significantly more experienced than I am and have much more kind of startup experience under their belt. They're far better, like domain experts in their area. And my biggest regret is I didn't bring them on fast enough. Um, I think like many entrepreneurs, you kind of go through the venture stage, just surviving and like just starving for oxygen. And you build a crew, a really tight knit crew, and you're desperately loyal to that crew who got you from say $0 to $10 million of revenue. But the crew that gets you from 10 million to a hundred million of revenue is not necessarily a different crew. I used to worry you have to churn everyone, but it's not. It's not necessarily you can't bring those people with you, but you have to supplement them from 10 million to a hundred million in revenue with like seasoned leaders who like see this as their forte. And I think my biggest mistake as an entrepreneur was I bet Zumper could have gone faster if we brought those leaders on a little earlier and paid them what they were worth instead of just kind of being a bit startup-y about it. Um, I think we probably could have shaved like one, one and a half years off the journey if we'd done that. But unfortunately, couldn't have shaved half the journey. Like some of it's just a grind. Right. It's a really, it's an interesting one, right? I mean, you know, I'd been through this exact thought process too. And, um, you know, I'm I'm someone, I, I love the challenge of, uh, zero to yeah let's just say use your example zero to 10 million that's a really interesting challenge and then um the type of person and then, and then by the way if you can do that you're probably capable of doing the 10 to 100 but going the 100 to a billion in rev is a completely different ball game again yeah and and and, and look, there are obviously some incredible founders you know jeff bezos clearly jumps out at someone who you can just keep adding a naught on the end of revenues and he's he's good for it um but um, it's actually pretty rare, uh, you know, you, you know, and, uh, you know, Google obviously handed over famously and to Eric and, um, you know, there's, there's tons of examples. I mean, obviously Zuckerberg's done a good job uh, on this too, but um, I, it's, um, I, I, I guess my, my kind of learning all of this is like, to your point, like, whilst you'd love it to be the same team, it doesn't have to be, but equally, um, you know, now you don't want to go too early bringing in kind of, um, the kind of not the suits but you know people from outside you know it can have impacts on culture too but but when your business needs to have more processing and, and you know and it's generally when you've got hundreds of people well you're going over like the dunbar number of what 140 or so if, if you haven't got good process and stuff it doesn't matter who you are In, unless you're like a computer game company that a billion people downloads it like you're going to run into huge issues um so but then again it's where a board comes in and your investors and their advice and you know, I know you've got some amazing investors and a lot of them have been entrepreneurs. Um, so, and I know your style has always been, you know, talk to people, listen and learn and, you know, take your own decisions. So um, that's good. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it, there's no way back. Like I, um, I, 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 Chris, you knew me when I was a, like trying VC out at Atomico where, you know, I was at, at Atomico for four months before going to business school. And, um, I, I think there's like two types of like entrepreneurs that can be successful. And it's interesting because I think you can be one of either 
Um, a lot of the, the like the storied ones are more like me, where they have a a problem that they want to solve. So I never wanted to be a CEO. I, I didn't walk around in my twenties thinking I want to have a CEO title. I just I, I like rented seven times in my twenties and like hated the experience. Whether I was in London, New York, Boston, it was just such a crap experience. So I wanted to build something to solve it, and, and I was like that kind of entrepreneur, which is what I think a lot of people uh, could have like to hold up as a great example. But actually, in my time in Silicon Valley, I've just I've met just as many entrepreneurs, if not more sometimes on the other side, who are entrepreneurs who literally just want to be a CEO. And they they love the the vanity of it, or they like the megalomania of it. And you know, what's bad, Chris is when I go again, because I'm definitely going to do more startups, like I think we've got a ways to go with Zumper. I love my job, but I don't have like a burning idea for my next startup. I'm, I'm, I'm only thinking about my current one, but like, I think I'm going to become like the second CEO next time because I really love it. And I fell into being an entrepreneur by accident and my goodness, it's a stressful job, like endlessly stressful. But if, if it's for you, it's for you. And weirdly enough, I think the next time I do it, I'll probably be a, a CEO in search of an idea. Whereas I, I think I was the inverse the first time around. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, actually. Uh, I think if you're like a good operator and you enjoy the knife fight of getting something off the ground, you can do it with any idea. I think you just have to find some inspiration. But yeah, I'm kind of stuck in it. Um, I, I don't think there's a way out. And for many of you who've done this, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's, it's pretty fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, look, the nice thing about the latter one is you're taking out, to some degree, product market risk. Now, that, by the way, is the thing. Every, some people, that's what they die for is working out the product market fit. Um, but if you're obviously joining a company that already has that kind of, let's say, relatively solved and it's about scaling it, different kind of kettle of fish. Um, yeah, there, there, I don't know that many people that are comfortable at doing both, but there are some, of course. So, um, But um, I mean, it sometimes to me feels like, and this is like not the case in most of the world. In most of the world, there's not like, thousands of experienced executives just you know ready to jump on the next thing right i mean this yeah. is where silicon valley has a pretty unique situation um so and you have an unfair advantage like if, if you've been a successful first-time entrepreneur which is definitely hard because you have to prove yourself the whole way through like you have such an unfair advantage for for people who have done this the second time where you can raise like 20 million in a seed round if you've had like a great exit. And if you look at like people like Travis at Uber and, and many other entrepreneurs who went on to be successful, like Uber was not Travis's first company. And, and in fact, it wasn't even his company. He could have joined an existing company and, and then led it. But, um, you know, it, second time round, it's an unfair advantage because even if you have smart competitors who've thought about your problem more than you have, if you've been successful and you can just go raise $50 million from like six phone calls, like that's just an unfair cheat you get back into the market. So I think it's like quite self-perpetuating where it's quite hard to leave if you've had a hit with your first one. And I think that's, you see a lot of, it's, a, it's a, obviously a minority of CEOs by the statistics, but some of the best CEOs didn't do it on their first one. They could have had a triple on their first one or double, but then the second or third or fourth ones like with a home run. And it's just like an unfair cheat that they get because they just get funded like quickly which is good for them. <laughs> I think that's like a smart move, but it's uh, you got to sign up for like three decades of, of doing it. And that's a, that's a taxing job. Right. And also I think there's a big misconception that people think the average CEO founder is a Zuckerberg or a Evan Spiegel. And this is just not the case. Like the, the, the stats show 
even in Silicon Valley, the average CEO founder is generally in their late 30s-ish, plus or minus. They've done some things before, maybe startups, maybe corporates. Um, and, um, you know, it, and to your point, it's, yes, the, well, and even the two I mentioned, it's not just, just like Facebook and Snapchat just magically worked and became huge. I mean, yep. you know, it was a grind. It's, it's always a grind. Um, I think there's the odd exception, maybe in computer games, but it, it's pretty rare. And even then, I mean, you're not going to keep producing great games if, if you got lucky. So, um, yeah. All right, I wanted to maybe finish with like one, it may be slightly random question, but like going back to kind of real estate, um, one of the things I've seen a little bit in Asia is um, like, for example, Singapore, um, it's the concept of kind of multi-use buildings. So in, um, in, in somewhere like London, let's say, is a city I know well, uh, it, you know, it's pretty common you're going to get, here's your office block. Um, okay, fine. There might be a little bit of retail at the bottom, but not that much. Um, but say in somewhere like Hong Kong, it's very common that here's an office block, but actually there's offices, but all the way up it too, there's all sorts of restaurants on floor 28 and this type of stuff. And Singapore are starting to layer in, oh, maybe some residential in this too. So kind of making, in effect, you're, you're removing commutes for people um, and really trying to kind of be a bit more creative about how we use these kind of buildings in cities, especially. Is that something you've ever thought about or see? Or um, I don't know how zoning works for this type of stuff, but just wondering how this, because commercial real estate must just be in a world of pain right now. So, um, and, and, and if yeah. the trends we've talked about earlier are true, commercial real estate is going to be a gigantic loser, but they're going to have to innovate somehow. Yes. Yeah, so the U S until COVID paid lip service to what you, you were talking about. I remember being in Japan uh, with my family like nine, 10 months ago and seeing exactly that. And I, I think there are Asian countries that have done it at greater lengths, but yeah, it's kind of like much more flexible, uh per building and the us just hasn't done it it's partly zoning it's partly being cultural <laughs> this has been a bit of a grand divide between like yeah this is where you live and this is where you work and this is where you go drink and party and there, there isn't that concept really in the us uh until now i think you're you're ahead of me my my answer was going to be commercial real estate is going to have to reinvent itself and whether it reinvents itself into like flexible work live flexible kind of open space that can be booked on a hourly basis um it's i mean there's going to be an absolute i mean a commercial real estate firm is getting decimated right now but like the, whereas there's more people that will come back to an office than they think there will be now because everyone thinks that twitter's right right and no one's ever gonna go back to an office which is just untrue um again it's back to the significant minority won't go back and so I don't know, Chris, in all honesty. And like, I'll be like, in the US, real estate has not been that innovative. There, is, there are these like crazy concepts and pop-ups that you see in Asia where you see really mixed retail, entertainment, office, live. You just don't get that in the US. So I actually genuinely, I want to be optimistic and say they're going to figure it out and fill their vacancies with it. I think there's another world in which there is a ton of vacant commercial real estate, retail, office, industrial, for quite a long time that isn't then used and no pop-ups go in there. And I'm, I'm kind of uh, towards the latter, actually. I think there might be inertia in the system. I think the U S is going to be in it for a while. Asia's way ahead on mixed use. And uh, I, I don't see the U S doing that tomorrow. Right. And it's interesting, right? Because this goes kind of, I'm going to put airlines in the same group, right? So it's slightly different, but 
going back to our discussion on capitalism and free market. Okay, so commercial real estate in a free market, and if we were truly a capitalist society, they would have to innovate, else they die, right? And you know what? Someone else will, the building's still standing. Someone else will come and buy it at a lower price or whatever, or your creditors get it. And ultimately, someone's going to come and innovate. It's the same with airlines. I, I fully understand that every country, well, for years, owning a national airline was like a vanity thing. And, and of course, there's been more um, mergers in, in, in the last kind of 20 years. So you kind of have now large groups across, I mean, especially across Europe and US. But like airlines being bailed out like they have been, I, I fully, I'm fully aware it's not their fault there was an epidemic, sure. But the problem is, is all the same companies are going to be, all the big guys are going to be there who'd never innovate anyway. Um, and again, if, if some of them have gone bust, and, and you know, the airplanes are still there. Someone's still going to own them and they, an entrepreneur can come along and innovate. And I feel like this is what, so it'd be really interesting what happens with commercial real estate and real estate in general, because you know, the, the problem with bailing everything out is you just suck out all this innovation. And that's kind of my fear overall from, from this, even though I agree with you that there had to be at least, you know, um, some large amounts of money put into stimulus to just stop basically people rioting. So I think it's going to be a very interesting few years. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. And the backstop point is a good one. Like the US is signaling it's going to backstop businesses from failing, which, yeah, it kind of removes an entrepreneurial flame from innovating around the, the problem. I, I agree. And again, I never thought of it that way, but it's true. And, it, and honestly, if US loses its entrepreneurial flame, it, then it's just a big consumer market. Just, it's just Europe. It's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just US, gonna... Europe are the same GDP, right? Yeah. Literally. Um, and it's interesting about the entrepreneurial flame that we talked about. I, I feel like you get, it, it's like as a CEO of a company, like, you know, I don't want my team working until like midnight every night. Like God, I, I was at BCG before this is in European, <laughs> like I, where I literally work till three in the morning every night. Like I, I, my culture is like, I want a hard, like, you know, I want a productivity culture, but like, I don't want my team working all night long. I want them to have amazing lives outside Zumper. However, if I say that on Twitter, if I went on Twitter and was just like, I believe good entrepreneurs have a great work ethic, which is just undeniably true. Um, you kind of get poo-pooed in the US. I think that there's, because of some of the income disparities, which is also hilarious because as a CEO, you know how little you actually own and it, you know, you're betting big on the stock. It's not like I'm being paid a fortune to run my company. I'm not. Um, the, um, I, I feel like it's, the work ethic is is questioned now in the US. And I think that it doesn't have the impatience to succeed that it used to because Silicon Valley feels like it kind of won. And if you, if you publicly say Zumpers or sorry, Company X, we believe in that hard work is part of success, which I think is just, it's bizarre to claim it isn't in any industry, like art, art form, anything. It's just a true fact. Um, empirically, uh, are you, people will yell at you. And I think it's like almost like a controversial statement sometimes in Silicon Valley that like you kind of need to work hard to be successful as well as being smart and curious and all these things. And that, that worries me because that is when you get uh, out innovated. And, and just to finish off with my uh, kind of Chinese comments, like you know, if you think about artificial intelligence, machine learning, like and innovations there, you could argue it might be winner takes all. <laughs> There's someone just out innovates by such a margin that it's done. 
and there's there's no catching and that's where i think silicon valley should be pretty scared because it might not be a, a kind of east asia west coast of america kind of battle like china just might just win and i don't think they silicon valley fully internalized that but we'll see that's a good point well that's great let's end on that so and thank you very much for your time and um what's the best place to well, obviously, everyone in North America should visit Zumper if they need to uh, rent somewhere or indeed if they want to rent a property they own. Um, yep. And um, and then what is, I, I mean, you're relatively, but not super active on Twitter, but it's at Anthemos. Is that kind of... That's it? Yeah, just go to Zumper.com or uh, any of the app stores or yeah, just at Anthemos on Twitter. I'm basically tweeting about startups or occasionally about football uh, or soccer. <laughs> Uh, soccer, well, yeah. what I would call football, but yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks very much, Anne. Let's leave Thanks, it. Chris.